This is the Pick Your Poison podcast. I'm your host, Dr. JP, and I'm here to share my passion for poisons in this interactive show. Will our patients survive this podcast? It's up to you and the choices you make. Do you want to know which substance is so toxic it's called the poisoner's poison? And what pigment used in painting treats this toxin? Which antidote contains cyanide? Then stay tuned. Today's interactive episode starts in the ER where you're working a shift when you hear an ear-piercing scream of pain. You look up to see the nurse draping the sheet over the legs of a 22-year-old woman. Immediately, the nurse whips the sheet off at the sound of the scream, revealing the patient's completely normal-looking legs. No obvious signs of trauma, wounds, or infection. The patient stops screaming but looks very uncomfortable and continues crying. So what's going on here? Why is she screaming? Is she suffering from psychiatric illness? Other than her drastic reaction to the bedsheet, her behavior seems appropriate. The nurse says the patient is complaining of excruciating pain in her legs for the past few hours. She's also had some vomiting and abdominal pain. The physical examination is unrevealing except for pain. The patient's vital signs are normal. Her abdomen is non-tender. She screams again when you touch her legs to check for a pulse. But the pulses are normal and she can move the legs normally. There's no redness, swelling, rash, or any other findings. Then why is she screaming about the featherweight of a bedsheet? The medical term for this is pain out of proportion to exam. It describes a patient who reports excruciating pain, but doesn't exhibit any significant findings on exam, making the diagnosis of the source difficult. Classic diseases that cause pain out of proportion are ischemia, lack of arterial circulation, but the strong pulses in her feet rule that out. Infection in the deep tissues can cause this, but it doesn't occur spontaneously in young, healthy patients and in any case wouldn't happen in both legs at once. This is a poison podcast, so let's get right to the toxicological causes of pain out of proportion. Black widow spider envenomation is a classic example that causes significant pain with only two tiny puncture wounds, but it causes pain all over, not just pain in the legs. Hydrofluoric acid is another classic cause of pain out of proportion. HF is used to clean bricks, and it's also found in wheel cleaner. It causes severe burns, and patients can get severe pain before the burns develop. Unlike with black widows, the pain is localized, usually to the hands where the patient was exposed. But she hasn't been bitten by a spider and denies exposure to any chemicals. Neuropathy is another cause of severe pain. Toxins like chemo and alcohol are definite causes. But it's rare in an otherwise healthy person, and it doesn't develop suddenly over the course of a few hours like this. So a visitor comes back. It's the patient's roommate. She sits in a chair and hikes her skirt up so it rests above her knees. She's not feeling well either, reporting diarrhea and also pain in her legs. It's not as severe as the patient's, but it's getting worse. Two roommates with the same symptoms? Is something in their apartment poisoning them? Carbon monoxide is a common environmental exposure, but it causes headaches and dizziness, not excruciating pain. Pesticides are toxic and many are lethal, but most don't cause severe pain in the legs, at least not in the absence of other life-threatening symptoms. The visitor's phone beeps with a text and she tells you their other roommate, a third person, also has abdominal pain and leg pain. This has to be a poison. All three roommates, previously healthy, now with the same symptoms. 
So we need to double down on the potential causes. Reviewing what we know, which isn't much, we do see a recognizable pattern. So question number one, the association of gastrointestinal plus neurological symptoms suggests what toxin? A, carbon monoxide poisoning, B, radiation, C, cyanide, D, heavy metals. The answer, D, heavy metal poisoning. We still don't know the cause. Heavy metals include a number of compounds, including lead, mercury, arsenic, and cadmium. And of course, recognizing this classic pattern doesn't rule out other types of poison. But we don't have much else to go on, so let's focus on heavy metals for now. The roommates are all university students. No one has an occupational exposure or a hobby like jewelry or stained glass making where they might have been exposed. Heavy metals can be found in supplements, spices, and cosmetics imported into the U.S. For example, lead in spices and mercury in skin lightening creams. They deny use of products from outside the U.S., so we have to assume this is a malicious rather than an accidental poisoning. The patient is now receiving morphine, and despite hefty doses, she's in agonizing pain. After more thought, the visitor reports one unexpected event occurring yesterday. The patient received a box of chocolates from an unknown source. The chocolates were packaged in a fancy box from an expensive chocolatier. The patient ate one. The visitor and their third roommate split a second chocolate. Suspicious. You ask if someone can bring the box to the hospital. The chocolate tasted funny, so they threw the rest away. But the patient thinks they're still in the trash can and texts her mother, asking if they can be retrieved. The roommate says the pain in her legs is now too much to tolerate and she needs to check in for treatment. The triage nurse puts her in the room next door to the first patient. You order morphine for her now unbearable pain. Our patients are getting worse. We need to get to the bottom of this and determine what to do to help them. Arsenic is always at the top of the list for malicious poisoning. It's a heavy metal, and I don't have to tell you it's long history. It's been used for murder since the Middle Ages. It classically causes gastrointestinal symptoms, abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea. Arsenic does cause neuropathy, but it takes weeks to develop. And while certainly painful, this level of excruciating pain is not typical. We can't exclude arsenic yet, but it really doesn't fit here. Lead poisoning can cause painful extremities, but again, symptoms typically occur over weeks, not all of a sudden. Other heavy metals include cadmium, chromium, manganese, zinc, and nickel. Exposure to these metals is mostly occupational, and again, the symptoms don't quite fit. Mercury can be found in old thermometers and old thermostats, but hard to imagine how this would be in occult exposure, and again, the symptoms aren't quite right. There is one heavy metal that notoriously causes excruciating pain. It's also been called the poisoner's poison. Question number two, what is it? A, copper, B, thallium, C, cyanide, or D, botulism? The answer, B, thallium. Thallium is the poisoner's poison. Several prominent toxicologists, whose names I won't mention here, have told me if they were to choose a poison for their worst enemy, it would be thallium. Why? Because thalatoxicosis is definitely lethal, it's difficult to diagnose, and it causes excruciating pain before it kills you. Also, death is delayed, directing suspicion away from the poisoner. These properties were 
exploited by Saddam Hussein. Several political prisoners were released from prison and immigrated to another country, believing they were safe. Shortly thereafter, they died. Some told of a, quote, last drink, quote, with their jailer. Literally. Unbeknownst to them, the drink contained thallium. Iraq wasn't the only government using it on its enemies. More on that later in this podcast. Back to our patients. We can test for heavy metals in the urine, but the results will take at least three days if we're lucky. A week if we're not. Almost no hospital lab runs these tests in-house. Most specimens will have to be sent to an outside lab for analysis, adding another few days to the results. So we collect the patient's urine and send it out. What should we do in the meantime? We suspect poisoning, but we have no forthcoming information. What about the box of chocolates? The patient's mother brings the box, and as with the urine, we can arrange for testing, but that will take time, much longer than urine testing, weeks or potentially even months. It's a fancy gold box stamped with the name of a famous chocolatier. Two chocolates are missing, per the history. The other eight are sitting inside. These don't look like any fine chocolates I've ever eaten. They're cracked and misshapen like lumpy dough balls padded into irregular shapes. They're more like a failed home cooking experiment than a delicious dessert. In toxicology, definitive lab tests often take a long time to result. Therefore, toxicologists are used to relying on ancillary information and clinical exam findings to both figure out what the toxin might be and to direct use of interventions and antidotes. In this case, suspecting, as we do, thallium poisoning, there are two things we could try to help confirm our diagnosis. One is a test we could do with a specimen from the patient, and one a test we could do on these unusual-looking chocolates. First, we could test the patient's hair. Not hair analysis like you might have heard about. Analyzing the presence of thallium in the hair can be useful in documenting thallium exposure. But hair testing takes even longer than urine testing. It might be useful for police investigation or legal documentation, but it won't be helpful clinically to treat the patient now. The patients might be dead before we ever get the results. What I'm referring to is a quick and dirty test. You ask the patient if you can pull out a strand of her hair at the root, Then you take it down to the lab and borrow a microscope. The hair follicle contains black pigmentation at the base, strongly suggestive of thallium poisoning. Second, there's another quick and dirty test we can do with the chocolates. As I'm sure you know, metal is very bright on x-ray. So you take the chocolates to the x-ray department and you ask the radiologist for a big favor. You might even include a candy bar from the hospital vending machine next to the misshapen chocolates as a control. The results? The suspicious chocolates light up like Christmas lights on the x-ray. The chocolates are composed of a substance containing metal, not at all like the vending machine candy bar. At this point, thalatoxicosis is our presumptive diagnosis. Should we wait a few days for the definitive test results or start treatment now? To decide, let's consider the potential treatment options. Just like our antidote in episode one, we need to weigh the risks and benefits of treatments. The patients are worsening, and the potential exposure could be lethal. We won't have a better answer for several days. So question number three, what is the treatment for thallium toxicity? A, charcoal, B, a pigment used in painting, C, dialysis, or D, all of the above? The answer, D, all of the above. First, activated charcoal. Yep, charcoal 
not in a brisket like you might use to grill, but rather in a liquid form. We toxicologists love it so much, we used to recommend it for almost all poisonings. Why? Charcoal binds to many drugs and toxins, inactivating them, and allowing passage through the gastrointestinal tract and out into the toilet without being absorbed into the bloodstream. Now we reserve it for circumstances because it's generally useful for toxins still in the stomach. It doesn't work as well for those lower down in the digestive tract. A few drugs, thallium is one, are recycled in a loop between the liver and the small intestine. In these cases, we can use multi-dose activated charcoal to break up this cycle and help eliminate the drug. So this brings us directly to question number four. Which pigment used in painting is an antidote for thallium? A. Cinnabar B. Emerald green C. Prussian blue D. Cochineal E. Naples yellow The answer? C. Prussian blue. One of the most famous examples of this pigment is its use in Van Gogh's Starry Night. See episode one for more toxicologic associations with that painting. The other choices contain toxins or, in the case of cochineal, beetles. Cinnabar contains mercury, emerald green is arsenic, and Naples yellow has lead. So how does a pigment treat poisoning? Like charcoal, it binds thallium, in this case, exchanging it for potassium. It shortens the lifespan of thallium, and it reduces concentrations in the heart and the brain. Prussian blue is sold under the trade name Radiogardes in the United States. That's because it's also used to treat radioactive cesium poisoning. The third treatment option, dialysis. Dialysis eliminates the naturally occurring waste and toxins that build up in renal failure. It can also remove some drugs, and in fact, a small amount of thallium is removed during dialysis and other methods of extracorporeal removal. So, should we treat our patient? Wait? Treat? Okay. Treat with what? This is the reason medicine is an art, not a science. Like physicians do every single day, we need to weigh the risks against the benefits. The risk of charcoal? Minimal. It's bad for the lungs, causes pneumonitis, but as long as the patient isn't sleepy or lethargic and doesn't choke on it, it's safe. If the bowels aren't moving, it can cause a blockage. This is a very minimal risk with an otherwise healthy patient. The side effect of Prussian blue? Blue poop. That's it. In this case, I would start activated charcoal in Prussian blue, other than the terrible taste of charcoal and blue poop, which we might not even get to see because charcoal causes black poop, there's little downside. The decision to start dialysis is more nuanced. There are very real risks associated with dialysis, infection being the biggest one. This very real risk becomes especially problematic if later we find that dialysis had no benefit. Thallium is removed by dialysis, like I said earlier, but many other toxins are not. And each patient will be different, but in this case, I would probably wait to start dialysis until I had more certainty in the diagnosis. Rather than twiddling our fingers while waiting for the results, let's talk about the mechanism of thallium toxicity. The honest answer, no one really knows for sure. It probably has the following four effects. Number one, energy failure inside the cells by interfering with ATP and the electron transport chain. Number two, interference with potassium metabolism, which is also critical for cell functioning. Number three, nerve damage. Nerves are covered in a protective sheath called myelin. Thallium damages the myelin in a dying back pattern, which is pretty much as bad as it sounds. 
For unknown reasons, it has an affinity for long nerve fibers. This is why symptoms start in the feet and progress upwards. And number four, it damages disulfide bonds found in hair and nails. More on the delayed symptoms this causes in a few minutes. Let's take a detour for today's pop culture consult. What spy movie villain is poisoned by thallium? Mr. White in the James Bond movie Spectre is slowly dying of thallium poisoning from thallium placed on his phone. From a scientific standpoint, there are some sketchy elements here. Maybe I'll do an episode entitled Fact or Fiction, Toxicology in Books, Movies, Operas, Shakespeare, but I digress. Getting back to our patients. Three days after admission to the hospital, we finally get some results. The spot urine test comes back with a thallium concentration of 9,000 micrograms per liter in the first patient. The normal value is less than 10. The second patient's level is 5,000. These massively high levels confirm our suspicion, no doubt about it, our patients are suffering from thalatoxicosis. Given the astronomically high result, I'd reconsider the risks and benefits of dialysis and call nephrology. Even removing a small amount of thallium might be beneficial. A few days later, the patient's hair starts falling out, and you notice they're losing their eyebrows too. The finding of hair loss, alopecia in medical terms, and severe pain in the legs are classic findings for thallium poisoning. Alopecia doesn't develop for at least a week or two after exposure, one of the reasons diagnosis can be delayed. And strangely, thallium causes loss of the eyebrows, but unlike most other causes of hair loss, spares the inner third of the eyebrow. It's so classic, it's almost diagnostic in and of itself. Alopecia is caused at least in part by its effect on the disulfide bonds I mentioned earlier. These effects also cause changes in the fingernails called mise lines. These are white stripes across the nails. They aren't specific to thallium, though, and they can be seen in many different heavy metal exposures. The history of thallium's use in poisoning is fascinating. I could talk about it for hours, but you probably don't have all day. So for the sake of brevity, I'll just hit some highlights. In Australia, in the 1950s, there was an episode called the Thallium Craze, where it became a popular method with housewives to poison their husbands and other family members. Australian housewife and serial killer Caroline Grills, whose prison nickname was Aunt Thally, poisoned numerous members of her family. Another woman expressed a wish to give her husband, quote, a headache to repay the many headaches he had given me, quote, referring sadly to domestic violence. In India, thallium has been called the inheritance powder, and its use isn't limited to just unhappy housewives. Saddam Hussein, I already mentioned, and other governments have used it. It was used as chemical warfare in the Rhodesian Bush War, and the East German secret police used it to poison dissidents. Sidney Gottlieb of the CIA, famous for his unethical LSD experiments, reportedly suggested using it on Castro to cause his iconic beard to fall out. Thallium also has a long history of commercial use. It's an effective rodenticide, rat poison, and was the star of a famous ad campaign in the 1920s in a product called Rough on Rats, spawning a song of the same title. Disturbingly, it was also used to treat humans with such advertising as rough on toothaches, rough on corns, rough on itching, and rough on piles, i.e. hemorrhoids. It's questionable if it was rougher on the disease or the patients. 
And like almost every other pharmaceutical was advertised as a treatment for syphilis and tuberculosis. It was sold for cosmetic use as a depilatory cream called, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, Karemlu. It did remove unwanted hair, unfortunately at the painful cost of thallium toxicity. Thallium was banned for use as a pesticide in 1972 in the U.S., but not so in other places. In Guyana in 1987, 44 deaths occurred as a result of thallium toxicity in a poisoned food chain. Molasses-laced thallium was intended to poison sugarcane rats. But cows ate the molasses and thallium was excreted into their milk, killing many of the humans who drank it. This terrible but illuminating case shows how easily food chain contamination can occur. Thallium has been reported since at least the the 1980s as a contaminant in illicit drugs, including cocaine, heroin, and opium. If you needed another good reason to avoid illicit drugs, this is one more. So what happened to our patients? Their hair fell out, as did their eyebrows. They suffered from the painful neuropathy. The first patient with a higher exposure had ongoing pain for several months, the second for several weeks. The third roommate had symptoms which were milder, and he never sought medical care. Thanks to our treatment, they both survived, and eventually their hair grew back. The police suspected the patient's ex-boyfriend, but evidence was lacking for prosecution. If patients survive thallium poisoning, many recover, but changes to the brain and nerves can be permanent. We estimate in about 20% of patients who develop residual nerve pain or residual neurocognitive defects, meaning their brain doesn't quite go back to where it started. With a moniker like The Poisoner's Poison, thallium has been used in many books and movies, not just James Bond films. Spoiler alert ahead, thalatoxicosis is detailed in Agatha Christie's novel The Pale Horse. I'm a strong believer that reading is a lifesaver, but this book became a literal lifesaver. A little girl in an ICU was critically ill with an illness that stumped her doctors. The nurse sitting at her bedside, reading the book, recognized the symptoms of thallium toxicity, which was later confirmed by lab testing. I hope our patients survived your choices today. This is a fictional case, as are all our cases to protect the innocent, but it is based on real poisonings from the past. It brings us to our last question in today's interactive podcast. What antidote contains cyanide? A, charcoal, B, Prussian blue, C, crofab, which is rattlesnake antivenom, or D, naloxone, which is also called Narcan? Post your answers on our Twitter feed at PickPoison1, and I'll post the answer in the next 24 hours. Finally, thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making this podcast. It helps if you subscribe, leave reviews, and or tell your friends. Please leave your comments. I love to hear from listeners. All of the episodes are available on our website at pickpoison.com, Apple, Spotify, or any other location where podcasts are available. Our Facebook and Instagram pages are both at pickpoison1, and additional sources like references or photos are available on the website along with transcripts. While I'm a real doctor, this podcast is fictional and meant for entertainment and educational purposes, not medical advice. If you have a medical problem, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. And until next time, take care and stay safe.